My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 45 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Tom Eckhart and Alyssa Bazinet. Tom was the visionary who came up with the idea to craft Measure 109 in Oregon, and Alyssa is a clinical psychologist who serves on the training subcommittee of the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board. I mean, I remember the moment, actually, when the, the, the ballot initiative concept kind of fell into my mind, and it did feel a little bit like catching lightning in a bottle, you know, as soon as I thought of that, it was like, whoa. Since this is well before any campaigns popped up around the country and around the world now, which I'm glad to see, but at the time it was crickets out there. Nobody was talking about psychedelic policy reform. There was uh, interest in changing, you know, getting rescheduling psychedelics on a national level, but not on a gra- grassroots policy level. So the overview of Measure 109 is really providing state-regulated legal access to psilocybin experiences. Um, it was intentionally designed to cover a wide range of possible settings and situations where people could use psilocybin. Um, so it's really inspiring in that regard. That's my favorite part about the measure is that it's intended for there to be a lot of different ways that people can have these experiences. So I think there's just there's humility in it. There's a service orientation. And then there's just an expansion. There's a um, the ability to... Um, catch different perspectives, to uh, see a bigger picture, to believe that reality is malleable, that things can change if you have a self-consistent overlay, that you can see something that isn't there yet. And if you kind of mentally can bring the self-consistency into your own being and your own thinking, that manifestation is possible. And I feel like I've learned that through this process. I've seen it. And that's kind of a responsibility, too. It's like when you understand your creative energies that you can make an impact, then the question of responsibility and what you're doing becomes all the more important. So I think psychedelics have facilitated that kind of thinking for me. We are living through remarkable times where psychedelics are making a comeback unlike most people could have imagined. But you know what? Some people did imagine. People like Tom Eckhart did imagine a very different future for psychedelics, a future that many people said was impossible. Tom is a great example of what psychedelic leadership is all about. And being a visionary leader means you need to clearly communicate a vision that inspires people to support that process of bringing that vision to fruition. And now very many people, including Alyssa Bazinet, are supporting this very complex process of implementing Measure 109. So there are two layers to which you can tune into this episode. On one level, we cover the basics of Measure 109, which is pretty wild because Measure 109 basically states that by 2023, which is less than a year away, psilocybin service providers are going to be legal in Oregon as long as they have adequate training. 
Now, of course, this opens up a lot of questions like what does this training entail? What are the sort of core curriculum or components of this training? How long are these trainings? Who's offering this kind of psychedelic training? All of these questions we cover in this episode. So if you already are in the psychedelic space and want to go a more legal route, which is very appealing for a lot of people, or you're thinking about stepping into the psychedelic space as a guide or facilitator, it's worth understanding what's happening in Oregon and what Measure 109 entails. Because in a very real sense, this could open up a new door of possibility for you and even literally change the course of your life. And I also like to remind people that being a guide or facilitator is only one of very many ways that you can contribute to the psychedelic space. So even with Measure 109, there are all sorts of ways that this is opening up opportunities for other people as well. It's also just so fascinating to hold space for conversations like this because it honestly just makes me feel like I'm a part of psychedelic history in the making and being able to ask questions and learn about what is evolving in real time. So that's one layer, all the nitty gritty details we cover about Measure 109. But if you listen to this from a zoomed out perspective, which is really the angle that I love, you'll hear a story about someone who came up with an idea and who worked with psilocybin to really tune in and formulate that idea and who, along with his late wife, Sheree Eckhart, imagined the impossible and who took a massive risk and a major step into the unknown and as a result of that courage, changed policy on a governmental level and is now changing history. And that's a story worth listening to and a story worth being inspired by. And it's how I like to think about what psychedelic leadership is really all about. Because as we all know, it is one thing to have an idea, especially in psychedelic space, you know, where we get all sorts of crazy ideas. And it's another thing altogether to consciously work with our plant teachers and really tune in from a very grounded place and listen to the wisdom of this medicine and then step forward to transmute that idea into reality right? It's such a powerful process. And the process of embarking on that journey really shapes us and molds us into the leaders and the humans that we're becoming along the way. So we start by hearing the remarkable origin story of Measure 109. Then for the middle section, we talk about everything related to the measure, the nitty gritty details. And then the last third part of the episode, we talk about leadership, how psychedelics have informed how they show up to lead and what they both have learned about themselves in this process. And that's the part of the conversation that I'm really the most interested in. Although the rest is important to know and it's good to be aware of, but the leadership aspect is really just the most interesting part to me personally. Now, I respect Tom and his work immensely. I also know that things are a lot more complicated under the surface. And as I've mentioned in the past, the more I peer under the hood of the quote unquote psychedelic industry, the more you sort of see the darker side of things or the complexity or the nuance or the reality that things are not so straightforward. And I alluded to some of this in the episode, but just very, very lightly. 
And after we recorded this episode, a couple of friends of mine sent me links to a recent article that was just published in Vice. The article is titled, In Oregon, Psychedelic Regulators Confront Conflicts of Interest. The need for financial and personal disclosures is another growing pain for the nascent psychedelics industry. Now, I'm intentionally not offering a personal opinion on this, but I will include a link in the show notes to this article if you'd also like to peer under that hood and formulate your own opinions. And I simply wanted to mention this article to be more inclusive of all sides of the story and to just show how complex and nuanced so much of this really is. All right, so if you are wanting to go through a psychedelic facilitation training, yet another incredibly complex and nuanced topic, I will be releasing an episode next week featuring Kyle Bueller. I always want to call him Bueller, but I think he says Buller, B-U-L-L-E-R, from Psychedelics Today, and they are kicking off a year-long facilitation program called Vital. And to my understanding, they are doing their best to stay in alignment with the Oregon licensing requirements. So I'll put a link to that training called Vital in the show notes if you want to check out what that program entails, and it kicks off at the end of April. Also, while I'm mentioning programs, if you want to get certified as a psychedelic integration coach that focuses primarily on addiction recovery, I recommend checking out Being True to You. I had the founder, Deanne Adamson, on the show in season one. That was episode number 34. So if you want to go back and give that a listen, if you haven't yet, she goes into detail about the program in that conversation. And the next cohort starts March 9th, so I know that's just around the corner, and I'll include a link to check out the details to that certification program in the show notes. And just as a reminder, if you want to access all of the resources mentioned in this episode, which there are quite a few, you can go to lauradon.co forward slash 45. On that page, you can also access the full transcript and you can also learn more about the work that Tom and Alyssa are doing. And you can also check out links to the featured musician. I'm going to be leaving this episode off with some fun hip hop vibes today. It's a song called Strongest of Our Kind, and that's by Mihaly featuring G-Love and Special Sauce. If you have favorite musicians or song recommendations, please send them my way. I love being turned on to new music. (laughs) You can interpret that in any way you like. And the easiest way would be to send me links through my Instagram DMs at livefreelauraD. I really do love being turned on by new music. (laughs) If you want to check out all the free downloads I have, including my four playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond, you can access all of those free offerings at my website, lauradon.co forward slash downloads. I would also love to hear from you. What have been your favorite episodes so far? What have been your favorite topics? Do you enjoy topics like this that cover legalities and policy like Measure 109? Let me know if you like this episode and also what are some of the topics you'd really love for me to cover and focus on? I am always open to hearing from you and open to suggestions. 
Ultimately, I love to follow the inspiration that's in my heart and conversations that just light me up and inspire. And I do hope that this episode inspires you. I want to inspire you to use your imagination to dream the impossible and to have the courage to transmute that vision into reality for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Tom Eckhart and Alyssa Bazinet. Welcome, Tom and Alyssa. It is such a pleasure to have both of you on the show today for us to dive into and explore what is happening in Oregon. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me here today. Thank you. Thank you. So I can't wait to dive into this conversation. Uh, Tom, I heard you share quite a moving story uh, back at Horizons in December, and it was quite a personal story, and you also shared the origin story of the Oregon campaign that took us back to 2015. So I thought it would be a good place to start, and I wanted to open this conversation by giving you space to share that story here with our listeners. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a Kind of a long story. We always aimed for 2020, but we got the ball rolling way back in 2015. And that was, uh, you know, a different landscape for psychedelics back then. The research was coming into effect and had been, uh, there'd been some great studies that were starting to get attention, but nothing like now. It was not a mainstream kind of conversation at all. Um, my wife at the time, who has since passed away, and chat about that as we tell the story, but um, she and I, her name was Cherie, um, are, we're therapists. I'm still a therapist, although I'm focused on psychedelics and uh, program development now. But at the time we were therapists in private practice. And um, I had a kind of a long history with psychedelics as a lot of us do, you know, just kind of working with them on my own and kind of understanding the power. It's hard not to when you get into a practice with psychedelics. Um, Sheree was kind of new to the game, but we had started dabbling together uh, for the first time, and that was impactful on our relationship and, and our connection. And so it was kind of in the air for us. We were, we were working with psilocybin and um, learning about the experience and about each other in that context. And then one day we came across an article in the New Yorker called The Trip Treatment by Michael Pollan. Uh, this is before his now famous book, kind of a forerunner in some ways to his book. It was a really comprehensive article that for the first time for me laid out all kind of the aspects of the research and also went into the kind of experiences of some of the um, participants in the research. And it was just so moving. And you know how Michael writes and how uh, you know, excellent he puts things together. And it hit me like this is really a comprehensive potential movement and science and um, therapy, therapeutic modality that could really shift the narrative on mental health. And that kind of hit me all. I kind of had a sense of that, but I never really put it together. So I thank Michael for, you know, uh, bringing it together so beautifully and everything he's done since in, in helping the movement along. Anyway, I read that article and was moved by it. And Cherie read it as well. 
and we got into a dialogue. We started talking. Um, you know, as therapists, we um, were moved by the, the potential to transform. Uh, you know, as therapists, we know that it's very difficult to really change uh, on a fundamental level, right? To change personality characteristics, for example. That's, that doesn't necessarily happen in talk therapy, uh, not, not very often. So we see this potential here. And I think Cherie posed the question to me. She said something like, you know, if you could, would you focus on this professionally? Is this something you would want to focus on or specialize in? And I'm thinking to myself like, well, yeah, I would, but I can't, none of us can, you know, there's, there's really no platform for it except inside the research itself. And that kind of bugged us. And I think it bugged a lot of people at the time once we started kind of tapping into the energy out there. You know, it was something of an injustice that, you know, prohibition had been 50 years uh, in counting, maybe less than that at the time. But, um, you know, and we know the long history there and, and kind of the political nature of the origins of prohibition on psychedelics. And so that became a dialogue. And we, at some point, I had... I mean, I remember the moment actually when the, the, the ballot initiative concept kind of fell into my mind and it did feel a little bit like catching lightning in a bottle. You know, as soon as I thought of that, it was like, whoa, that's something. And at the time, cannabis had just been legalized via a ballot initiative in Oregon and that was kind of in the air. So I saw the potential, you know, for political impact and drug policy reform, uh, but it had never been applied to psychedelics. And I remember getting on Google and looking around to see if, you know, anyone was thinking about anything like that, like uh, policy reform in the psychedelic domain. And the answer was no, you know, since this is well before any campaigns popped up around the country and around the world now, which I'm glad to see. But at the time it was crickets out there. Nobody was talking about psychedelic policy reform. There was uh, interest in changing, you know, getting rescheduling psychedelics on a national level, but not on a gra grassroots policy level, right? So Sheree and I had to sit with that uh, because we were, um, you know, kind of overwhelmed with the responsibility of taking that on and thinking like how fragile the movement was. We certainly didn't want to get in the way of progress or make a wrong move. So we took the decision very, you know, we didn't take anything lightly. In fact, we sat on it for about a week feeling rather anxious about whether or not to move forward with this kind of grand idea. And then we finally realized there's really only one thing that left to do, and that is consult the mushroom. Mm -hmm. So we um, packed up the car with uh, camping equipment and went out to went up to Mount Rainier, uh, which is a beautiful mountain here in the Pacific Northwest near Seattle, went camping and took a nice hefty dose of psilocybin in a beautiful old growth forest amongst the giant firs and under the mountain. Took a beautiful hike, came back to our camp spot uh, and started a campfire. The sun went down, we went quiet, the golden teachers came alive and we uh, sat with our intention of uh, coming to some conclusion as to if we would move forward on this. And I remember my mind kind of expanded outward to kind of a 
frame. I like to think of it as like a thousand years wide. I kind of felt the distant future in some interesting way. And I remember thinking to myself, what are the kind of historians of this future time uh, of an advanced civilization that actually survives and makes it through? What would the historians of that period think about our civilization, kind of looking back through the folds of time? What would they see, right? And, you know, this is my expanded state. This was my altered perception. I almost felt like I could feel them looking back. And it kind of felt to me like they wouldn't be looking at our technologies or our, you know, ridiculous politics or anything like that. They'd be looking at our consciousness and specifically our kind of lack of connection uh, with our own inner resources, our own inner sanctum, if you will. And so I was deep in that place and kind of lost in my own thoughts around that. And it was somewhere in that mix that Cherie pierced the quiet and kind of whispered an odd statement. She said, I think I'm pregnant. And I thought this was kind of an interesting, uh, we, we couldn't have kids. So I knew that there was something up with that statement. And she said, finally, she said, this campaign, this, this mission, this vision will be our baby and we'll raise it as such and we'll care for it and help it grow strong, right? And I remember thinking to myself, as soon as I heard that, I knew I was down and we would, we would carry this all the way to its end. And we did. We, uh, we started a campaign that uh, always aimed for 2020. We knew that science needed to develop and that public opinion would need to evolve and that we needed to build structure and coalitions. And so we took our time with doing that and, uh, and, uh, the rest is history. There's lots of stories that can be told about the campaign itself, but I'll pause there and leave that as the general origin story of Measure 109. Mm, that's beautiful. And I love how you weave in just the real-time process of checking in with these plant teachers, these fungi teachers, especially at this time where you're moving into uncharted territory. So it's like, and that's what really psychedelic leadership to me is all about. You know, how do we do this in a good way and stay behind the medicine and really tend to this with a lot of responsibility? So I really appreciate that story. So I want to share, you know, at the Horizons Conference, I heard Joe Green, who you guys know from the Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative. Now, Joe said numerous times, I don't know if you heard this, but at Horizons, he said on stage in his keynote and at the business day, he said, not enough people are paying attention to what's going on in Oregon. So for people who don't know what's happening and what Measure 109 is, let's just take a moment to give an overview of that. Want to take that one, Alyssa? Sure. Um, so the overview of Measure 109 is really providing state-regulated legal access to psilocybin experiences. Um, it was intentionally designed to cover a wide range of possible settings and situations where people could use psilocybin. Um, so it's really inspiring in that regard. That's my favorite part about the measure is that it's intended for there to be a lot of different ways that people can have these experiences. So, you know, we hear this debate 
debate in the national space about is it going to be medicalization that takes over psychedelics or is it going to be legalization or decriminalization? And Measure 109 is really none of that. It's it's really intended to be a hybrid of those things. So it's in the middle um, where folks, you know, will have supported services available to them. So they do have to um, have psilocybin given to them at a psilocybin service site with a adult who is in the room providing support while they have that experience. Um, and there is preparation involved so that people are able to enter into fully informed consent and understand what it is that they are going to be experiencing. Um, and then there's optional integration. So it is slightly different than the protocols that have been studied in the clinical trials so far, where there does tend to be more structured integration and more um, of a psychotherapy component. Um, and Measure 109, you know, allows room for that, but it also allows room for people to just come have a psilocybin experience for their own personal growth or wellness or spiritual experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be to treat some sort of disorder or diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So it's really beautiful, really the intention of the whole system. Um, and then in practicality, there's how do we implement that? And how do we create state regulations and rules that govern all of those different types of experiences? Um, and I think that's, you know, the meat of what we're in right now on the psilocybin advisory board. And Tom and I are both on the training subcommittee. So we've been hashing out the rules and regulations of what a state regulated training program should look like. Uh, and then there are other subcommittees looking at research and licensing and products. Um, mm. And so it's a really complicated process of implementing this measure. Oh my gosh. And I, I commend you both so much because it's so interesting because when you look at the psychedelic space, everyone's got a very strong opinion around how this whole thing should go down. So how to even hold space for, you know, multi-stakeholder meetings where everyone has a seat at the table. And what I heard you say is that it's not necessarily just for people who are like, oh, I'm struggling with depression, but someone might want to have a psycho-spiritual experience. And so you're really creating space for the full spectrum of why people might intend to come to these medicines, which actually makes it far, far, far more complicated to hold space for. So I'm kind of curious. I think like the next place would be to go in the direction of, I mean, we also see a huge facilitation race. There's companies who are racing to create facilitation programs, and that's a big topic. And I know a lot of people in my audience are very interested in that. Um, and it seems like that is a huge opportunity for a lot of people. And I think when we spoke, Alyssa, it was kind of news to me that anyone actually could come into Oregon and create a program that was sort of under the umbrella of what the approved facilitation training looked like, but it could actually look in many, many different ways. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about the, the facilitation subcommittee under that and like how you guys are deciding what goes into, you know, what, what makes a good facilitation program? What are the elements that have to be included in that? I mean, we could dive into this on such a deep level here because there's a lot here. Yeah, just to back up and kind of connect this all to the origin story, we, you know, in our inspiration and motivation to move forward was really based on the question of, well, not only ending prohibition and addressing the mental health crisis we're experiencing here in Oregon, but also thinking deeply about how to integrate 
psychedelics back in the culture? Like, mm -hmm. what is the way that makes the most sense, right? And, you know, psychedelics as an intervention, as a modality, as a, as a wellness paradigm, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into that medical model mm -hmm. uh, because it's more inclusive than that. The psychedelic experience itself is what uh, facilitates the change and then integration and careful support, mm -hmm. you know, enhances and, and optimizes that effect, right? So the fact that it's an experience we're talking about and a very profound and deep experience and vulnerable experience uh, puts it in this kind of therapeutic and wellness frame as opposed to just thinking of it as like a, another antidepressant or mm. uh, a pharma uh, intervention. This is really um, an experience. And it's to, to Alyssa's point, it's about how we uh, care for that experience, how we create space for it, how we facilitate in a way that doesn't get in, a, get in the way of the actual uh, experience itself, but rather uh, affirms it and optimizes it and facilitates it. And so that is the frame we're looking at. And it wouldn't make sense to just um, narrow that down to kind of diagnostic categories, because those of us who kind of understand a little bit about psychedelics through our own use kind of know that it tends to go where it needs to go because it's your experience. You know, from a medical standpoint, you might call that transdiagnostic efficacy. Mm -hmm. it, it works in a lot of different ways, depending on what you're working on and where you start with because it's your own subjective energies you're working with and 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 um you know a facilitator to understand that it's kind of a unique um discipline to understand how to work with that sit with that not uh not get in the way of it right mm -hmm. so that's kind of a, a, a backdrop there mm -hmm. and i think that you know that measure 109 is trying to create an integrated platform in which, you know, all of these possibilities can be addressed, you know, concerns from um, even preventative and wellness to therapeutic and medical, you know, mm -hmm. all of that on one platform, mm -hmm. you know, and all of those kind of concerns and requirements have different nuances to them. And uh, the idea is to sort that all out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's kind of the 10,000 foot view. Mm -hmm. Now, when we look at training, you know, there's been a lot of discussion as to, you know, how we create a training program that um, covers these core competencies that are relevant to all aspects of the work, while also being mindful of scope of practice and uh, particular needs, you know, that will come up. And so the core competencies, you know, we're not rebuilding the you know we're not reinventing the wheel here there's great information out there we are trying to integrate lots of perspectives in a way that makes sense for the oregon model specifically so the training subcommittee has heard a lot of expertise uh, from the research community from indigenous uh, wisdom traditions um, you know from private the private sector um, you know, we're trying to just gather as much information as we can, which I think we've done. And now we're more in an active uh, phase of making recommendations to the Oregon Health Authority regarding what needs to be in, in training, both administratively and in terms of curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a bit of backdrop. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And Alyssa, feel free to jump in. I, I don't know if we want to get into the curriculum itself or just kind of overview some of that. If, if you yeah, maybe before we yeah. go there, Alyssa, getting into like the nitty gritty of the curriculum, I'm kind of curious. So is it accurate to say that as of 2023 that psilocybin is legal in Oregon? Yes, that is that is the goal that in 2023 psilocybin services will commence. And so we're doing all of the prep work now to make sure that we are ready to provide those services. Um, and so I there think are serv- yeah, services is a key word there as opposed to just psilocybin being legal like cannabis. Right. Dive into that a little bit more because it's not just anyone can possess psilocybin and it's legal, but it's actually legal within certain frameworks. And that leads into who can provide those services. Yes. So just a little bit of the distinction there. Um, Yes. So psilocybin services will be legal, meaning people can come to a state approved psilocybin services site with a licensed facilitator and have a psilocybin experience on the premises of that site. So they can't go to the site and purchase psilocybin and take it home uh, for their own use. Um, It will have to be sort of supervised on site. Um, There is also um, a caveat that Oregon also uh, decriminalized all substances. There are some limitations there, but decriminalized possession, uh, personal use possession of all substances, including psilocybin. However, there are limits to that, I believe. And I think that it's something like five grams of psilocybin, maybe it's seven grams. It's not very much. So that beyond that, if somebody were to possess more than seven grams, then uh, that would still be criminalized. Mm-hmm. So all of the people who are trying to jump the gun on selling psilocybin microdoses, <laughs> which is happening now, is like, oh, well, I can do it legally in Oregon starting 2023, but that's not accurate. You can't sell psilocybin microdoses. No, not at this not at this point, although I will say that that is a current debate um, on the psilocybin advisory board and in the public because there's nothing necessarily written in the measure that prevents microdosing models from being available. Um, but the debate is about, okay, well, if somebody comes to a psilocybin services site and they want to take a microdose, the idea is that they're supposed to be supervised while they're under the influence of psilocybin. But since microdoses are not typically perceptible. How do we define that? Would it be okay for somebody to come on site, take the microdose and then leave because they're not acutely feeling the effects in the same way that you would with a macrodose? So this is the nuance that's uh, received quite a bit of discussion lately. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the way that I'm understanding it based on a recent conversation that we had on the phone, Alyssa, is that it's sort of like school models, like state governed school models where like the Waldorf school is like, actually, we want to do school a little differently, but we still need to meet these government level sort of targets or regulations. So different organizations can come into Oregon and say, okay, as long as we're sort of fulfilling these certain targets of, you know, required training, that actually the training could look very, very different. So there could be, is this accurate to say there could be one level of supervision that might just actually be more like trip sitting. And then there might be another model that's within like a different context. I think even I heard Joe Green say, oh, if someone wants to, you know, do a training that's like somatic based or that's, you know, within the framework of Judaism or something that they could technically do that um, as long as they're hitting certain requirements. So training programs could actually look very different. There could be shamanic based worldview trainings versus, you know, somatic based training. Is that is that accurate? 
Yes, I would say that's accurate. There's definitely a degree of creativity in what the training programs can include. However, the minimum requirements as we have recommended them to the Oregon Health Authority so far are pretty comprehensive. So maybe this is a good time to just yeah. hit what some of those modules are and what the topics, the required topics are. Um, and again, none yeah. of this is yet official through OHA, but this is what the recommendations have been from the advisory board. Um, so, I would be yes. a little little careful with saying that training programs can look kind of wildly different. You know, I think they can be different, and some of your points are well taken that you can have um, <clears throat> different perspectives that are leaned on and that are kind of your signature, but they have to meet these kind of core requirements around non-directive uh, facilitation. So this is not where we're going to have training programs that are kind of outside of the box of, you know, uh, what we know to work and what we know that won't cause harm specifically. And there is flexibility in there. So there, and there's no doubt that training programs will have their unique signatures and that's great. Um, but importantly, there is a very strong set of core requirements that are very, are pretty detailed around what needs to be in the training program and what shouldn't be in a training program. Mm -hmm. And that's super important because this is, uh, you know, the, the training is the, the heart of the program, and the program is based on safety and practice standards and ethical standards and access, I would say. So, you know, there is a commonality between all the training, and there should be community between all the training, um, such that we are adhering to these kind of evolving standards. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, maybe, Alyssa, you can share a few of, of what these standards are, are looking like. Sure. Um, yeah, so we are um, requiring that training programs cover sort of the full spectrum of ways of knowing with regard to working with psilocybin. So this means that there will be a requirement for uh, historical and traditional use, as well as more westernized um, scientific-based models of understanding, so really the full comprehensive picture of all of the ways in which cultures throughout time have used psilocybin. Um, really having a heavy emphasis on cultural equity as well and health equity, social justice, racial justice, so this will be a requirement. Um, safety ethics and responsibility, so this is the ethics of facilitation, of understanding boundaries between the facilitator and the client, obtaining fully informed consent understanding things like role power differentials where the facilitator is in a atypical role of power and the client is often in a more vulnerable position and how to ethically work with that state. Um, there will be requirements of the understanding of trauma, uh, how that shows up in the body, you know, what is happening physiologically when people are experiencing a traumatic memory. And then there will be a lot of focus on just the elements of a uh, facilitation session. So what does proper preparation look like? Uh, what kinds of screening is necessary? How to actually hold space during the administration session? Um, a lot of focus on the facilitator being aware of their own inner process and their own nervous system and how that might affect the space that's being held for the client. Um, and then integration as well as group facilitation. So I think those are the, the main components. Tom, let me know if I am missing something. Yeah, I think you got it. I would just add to the administrate the administrative or administration session, the actual psilocybin session, there's a real focus on, you know, being prepared to respond to difficult behaviors or unusual things that may come up. Clearly, you know, safety is is 
is at at the fore. And yeah, we're working with folks in very vulnerable states of mind, as you know, and and so part, a big part of maturing into that facilitator role is being able to stay centered and know what to do as things come up. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned centers, though. So is this going to be state-owned centers? Or are these no. like private locations? Like could someone as a facilitator move to Oregon, rent a house and be able to hold space in their spare bedroom? Yeah, really good question. So firstly, on the state oversight. So it's common kind of misnomer that this is like a state run program. Um, it's state regulated, not state run. OK, so what that means is like I'm a I'm a therapist, right? That means I have a license with the state to do therapy. It doesn't mean this the state runs my private practice, right? So it is regulated and you answer to the code of ethics, you answer to the licensing board, but you're an independent uh, practitioner. Okay, so service centers are licensed, but they're independent entities. So anyone can, you know, go through the process of getting licensed. Mm -hmm. That's true for facilitators as well. By the way, this is a brand new licensing structure, right? Mm -hmm. These are licenses that aren't piggybacking on other licenses. This is actual psilocybin facilitator license, psilocybin service center license. So this is where the the measure creatively uh, carved out a new space in the culture for psilocybin services. Now it connects and plays well with other licenses and other disciplines, and that's by design as well, but it's its own thing. Um, And it is all of these licenses are independently held. So these are not government run programs in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so do you need to be a therapist or a medical practitioner to go through this program to become licensed to administer psilocybin? Yeah, not necessarily. It's very much invited and uh, a positive to have, have previous experiences that relate to you know working with clients. But we also wanted, importantly, to create pathways for anyone who has the real heart and disposition and discipline and potentially experience through other channels uh, to get involved and to to be able to facilitate if they move through the rather rigorous uh, process of becoming licensed. And that's a big part of this measure is that we're kind of pulling it out of these conventional, mostly medical models and creating a new discipline that uh, you know, is not necessarily based on a purely uh, medical model. And, uh, you know, again, I think a lot of therapists will be attracted to this work, but we also open up um, potentials for other folks that have uh, different backgrounds. Okay. So my understanding is that you are on this regulatory board, but you're creating the standards. So you're not actually creating the curriculum. Other companies and organizations are coming in. And my understanding is that sort of like Synthesis Institute seems to be like the front runner here. They've been doing facilitator trainings out of the Netherlands. I heard that they just purchased big acreage of land in Oregon. So I I feel like they're, you know, heading in that direction. Um, And so is that accurate to say you guys are creating what needs to be included in the curriculum, but you're not necessarily creating the curriculum. Other organizations are doing that. That's That's right. So what will happen is the Oregon Health Authority, again, the the advisory board is simply an advisory board, very active board and 
and the Oregon Health Authority really, uh, you know, takes our recommendations to heart. But ultimately, their recommendations and the and the Oregon Health Authority will take those recommendations and create the rules around training programs and everything else. And with regard to training programs, there will be an application process through the Oregon Health Authority to become an approved training program. So I imagine that hasn't been developed yet, but I imagine that application process will pull off all the rules, will, you know, basically ensure that you know, training programs that are applying for approval will meet all the different requirements that are laid forth. It'll be a detailed application process. Mm -hmm. So when Joe Green said not enough people are paying attention to Oregon, do you think that he was referring to the massive opening for organizations to create programs. I mean, like, I, I, I want to be sensitive here. And I also promised my audience that I'd bring a lot more like truth telling to season two of this podcast. Synthesis charges about 18,000, I think, currently for their program. Um, so this is also big business that we're talking about. Um, and, and where does, you know, equity fit into that? Because if it's a $18,000 program, which when you can make the case relative to like a master's degree, maybe that's actually really affordable and everyone needs to get paid. But I'm just saying like, do you think that that was the focus? There's huge money-making opportunities here and more companies need to be paying attention to that. I don't think that's where Joe is coming from. I think he's just making the point that people don't really understand that the that Oregon is a flexible model that is going to draw uh, demand into psychedelic therapy and services that we have not seen in this country. This is going to be the platform that's happening. Right. And so he's just shining a light on that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like, I don't, I'm not sure if folks around the country are fully aware of the kind of impacts, the potential impact. So this is not about business in our mind. There mm -hmm. is a business aspect to all of this, but this is about impact on the people of Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, creating healing and safe places to address the mental health crisis that we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. There will be programs that are less expensive than what you're uh, identifying. I'm mm -hmm. quite sure of that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of talk around equity and access. Generally, uh, one of the subcommittees of the advisory board is the equity subcommittee. And that's actually kind of an oversight committee, which means that it is overseeing all the other committees so that recommendations that come through the other subcommittees pass through an equity lens because we don't always see everything. It's, it's nuanced, you know, mm -hmm. how, um, you know, what are the kind of hidden ways that we can kind of unlock access the best we can. Now there's only so much you can do probably on an advisory board and OHA level. A part of this is the private sector. Part of this is, mm -hmm. is uh, nonprofits stepping in Mm -hmm. I'm going to plug a nonprofit, the Shri Eckert Foundation that I'm working on, uh, which is uh, for equitable access to training and services. We're creating scholarships for mm -hmm. uh, a diversity of uh, potential applicants to to training programs so that we have a diverse uh, practitioner population. Mm -hmm. So that's at shreeckert.org if you look for looking for a scholarship to get trained to become a practitioner. Mm -hmm. So there's different avenues to try to help Mm -hmm. uh, with access and diversity, we certainly want, I, I feel like if we don't meet people where they're at and provide services and training to folks where the most help is needed, then the statewide program is not succeeding. Mm -hmm. So, 
uh, we give a lot of attention to uh, to addressing that challenge. And it is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll just say too, that like, you know, Martine from Synthesis is a friend of mine and I've looked at their content and their curriculum and it's a great program and just not everyone's going to be able to afford that. So, you know, just acknowledging how, how we go about that as well. Yeah. I just want to add that I I do believe it's both. And I think you're not wrong, Laura Don, that there is a big business that is moving into Oregon. And that certainly wasn't necessarily the intention of the measure, um, but it is just the result of being, you know, in a capitalist system and in so many people that want to be in this space and Oregon being one of the early opportunities to have a business in this space. And so I'll just speak for myself personally. It's been a lot to navigate all of the people that are reaching out, wanting to collaborate, wanting to create businesses, wanting, you know, funding opportunities, and all the discernment that's needed to really check in with what feels right. Um, And it is, it is overwhelming at times. So that energy is definitely here. Um, And there's a huge potential for all sorts of different types of business from nonprofit to, you know, the syntheses and the bigger retreat centers of the world (laughs) to come into Oregon and set up shop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, from my perspective, you're really creating a template for the nationwide rollout state by state. So are you imagining that once this ball is rolling, then some of you are going to go and see advisory roles in other states and like really help the rollout? I see you, Alyssa, is like shaking your head. You're like, I got so much on my plate right now, girl. I can't even imagine. (laughs) I'm committed to Oregon and Portland and to my community. Um, You know, there might be other folks that uh, move to other states and and help out. But I I think that that system is already in place. I think Oregon in many ways is the guinea pig, um, but there are other statewide measures that are are being written and that are, you know, being put out there that were inspired by Oregon. Um, and of course, we haven't even fully implemented things yet. And those measures are popping up. And so it does feel like all eyes are on Oregon in a way. And it does feel I don't know how you feel, Tom, but there is this underlying sense of pressure of, you know, we're the first to do this, we've got to get it right, because we are influencing the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think we're embracing that challenge. It's a uh, Definitely a little anxiety provoking, but I think, you know, we've really got the structures in place to address all the concerns and and evolving in a good way. In terms of it spreading, yeah, I mean, I don't really, I'd like to see things bubble up in different states kind of organically and not kind of come top down, kind of do this work. But that said, I definitely would love to see the Oregon model proliferate because I think, you know, not without evolving or being tweaked this way or that, but the essential access model, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ability for people to access these services, uh, not just through kind of a pharma-driven model or psychiatric model, but for that kind of inclusive wellness therapy, medicine integrated platform. You know, it's kind of the counterpoint to, you know, what we see uh, kind of in the, kind of pharma-driven pharma approach. And I don't want to create like a, a conflict, and I don't. I think I, I see a unified platform where all of these needs are met and they all have, uh, you know, specific value. But I think all of the needs need to be met in the Oregon model in that mix, you know, kind of makes that case. And I don't want that to be lost on a national level. So mm-hmm. I do hope to see the Oregon model continue to uh, 
to, to spread. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of rollout, because we're, gosh, 11 months and counting from 2023. So, and, and is it January, 2023 that this is legalized in terms of these, these services and are people currently getting certified? Are programs open right now or like for, or is that, is that still a work in progress? Yeah, it's still a work in progress. Uh, the training recommendations are moving through the uh, training subcommittee into the advisory board. The advisory board approved something like 70 me- uh, recommendations. So the Oregon Health Authority now has lots to work with. There's a few more things we want to sew up. And my understanding that is in May, the OHA plans to release the uh, rules for training book programs specifically which is kind of an expedited timeline to get those rules out because I think you're picking up on the fact that in order to have practitioners in 2023, they need to be license ready, which means that they need to be trained earlier than that. And uh, so we're hoping to get programs uh, approved on the ground. Uh, you know, generally this summer would be a great target. This is not, you know, uh, um, this is all premature to talk about, but that's kind of the hope. Um, but the rules should be in place in May, at least that's what uh, the mm-hmm. Oregon Health Authority hopes to, to achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's a question of how long does the application process take? How long does it take for programs to kind of get up and running and, and operating? So yeah, a little bit of a time crunch, but we're working to get those get that going as soon as possible. And just to add to what you said, Tom, uh, I do know there are some programs that are beginning to operate that are kind of banking on um, knowing generally what's going to be required in the training program and just kind of getting up and running and maybe they'll make edits later. Um, We are requiring, I think it's a 160 hour program. So it's not you know, it's not insignificant. So there are programs that are, you know, getting started now with the things that we know are probably going to be in there, and then we'll be making edits later. And one of the recommendations that we gave to OHA was also to confer what we're calling accelerated training hours, because there are so many um, practitioner, psychedelic practitioner trainings that have existed previously, like MAPS and Fluence and many others. And so hoping that people who've already had that kind of training can get some of those credits um, applied to their state-approved psilocybin facilitation program. Mm, And how do you feel about some of these organizations jumping the gun? Do you feel like? I don't know if I think of it as jumping the gun. It's just this is a evolving field and there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of good people uh, working to refine standards around training, and um, there's a lot of demand for it. I, I would say that it's good to create clarity out there that it is jumping the gun in terms of getting into an approved Oregon program. There are no approved Oregon programs yet, so mm-hmm. there is no licensure track yet. So you want to be clear about what you're getting into, and I would hope that programs are being clear. I think they are. Uh, but as far as programs existing and kind of having an eye on Oregon's recommendations. I think that's all healthy. Okay, great. And what about apprenticeship models and mentorship? I feel like it's one of the main things that's actually missing in our current westernized culture that's very different than the shamanic approach where it's like, you know, you have a mentor, you have an elder who helps support that. Is that um, a topic on the table for discussion? 
it's definitely a topic. I think there's a, a, a discussion around the bend here as to what happens after uh, practitioners get licensed. How do they continue to stay connected in the work rather than being kind of thrown into the work without support? We certainly don't want the latter. Um, and I think we have ideas around that. Uh, Alyssa, I, I, I'm imagining that that's an important piece for you, maybe you can speak. Very much so, yes. I, I feel that that is crucial, ongoing supervision and experiential work with an elder, with somebody who has done this work previously, and ongoing experiential practice for the facilitator. Uh, we did recommend a practicum be part of the required training program, but I believe that practicum was approximately 40 hours, which, you you know, is something, but not a lot. Um, and so one of the conversations that we're actually having later today in the training subcommittee, I just realized, Tom, that that's this afternoon, um, is around best practices for facilitators. So what does it look like to be engaging in best practice over time? Um, and one of those being ongoing work with a mentor, ongoing supervision, ongoing peer support, and really committing to a lifetime of that because the work is really never done. Right. And so we don't want facilitators to be practicing in a silo. That support and that experiential work is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And then looking at questions like, you know, generally, I'll just say that, you know, psychedelics are actually really safe. But then when we start looping in some like severe mental health issues that we're witnessing, if something happens in a session with a licensed you know, service provider, um, something really, let's say extreme where somebody's injured or there's a death, then what, what is the, the follow-up to something like that? Or maybe there's sexual misconduct. Is there also like an advisory board that's going to be in place to hear cases like that? Is that part, I'm sure that's got to be part of the discussion. One of the, one of the big benefits of a regulated model and, and a big reason why we, you know, are working and to set this all up is that, um, you know, it starts with good training and it starts with developing competent facilitators, but nonetheless, you know, less than optimal outcomes will happen, you know? Mm -hmm. And the question is, uh, what's the response to that? You know, and in Oregon under a licensing model, there's somewhere to uh, provide feedback and also complaints and there'll be a resourced, uh, you know, board and um, authority to investigate those complaints. That's what's been missing in some of the, you know, kind of um, issues that come up around ethics and, and boundaries uh, that we've been hearing about is that, yeah, we can kind of litigate it in the public square, but what's really, you know, where does it really go? Well, in Oregon, we want to, to have mechanisms for feedback, complaints, investigations, if necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and also potentially, you know, this is, this is not, uh, this is again, a, a topic of discussion, but, you know, anonymized um, opt-in data collection that helps refine our program and, and identifies where problems are and how we can get better. Mm -hmm. So this is all part of having uh, infrastructure and regulation, uh, not not to impose uh, things, but to create a context where these issues are are addressed and and uh, brought to light and looked at, and so there's kind of constant quality improvement. Mm -hmm. 
Is there anything you want to add, Alyssa, to that before I ask the next question? Um, I think Tom mostly covered it, but I will add that we are designing a uh, facilitator code of conduct and ethical standards that will be part of the licensing process. So facilitators will have to adhere to that code of ethics, um, and then cases can be brought up to a regulatory board if something does not um, go well, if, if somebody is not following that code of ethics. And will that be public? Yes. So interestingly, everything that we're discussing right now is public. Oh. So there's actually a state um, website. It is pretty comprehensive, so it definitely can get overwhelming for folks to look through. But all of the draft documents, every discussion that we have on the advisory board level, they're all recorded. They're all able to be attended by members of the public. Members of the public can make comments at the end of the meetings. And so all of these drafts, as we're working on them and as they're finalized, will be posted on that website. Mm, awesome. Okay, that's great news. Um, and then if you want to give me that link and I can include that in the show notes as well for people who want to check Absolutely. it out. So then this also brings in this other question of like where the, the corporate side of psilocybin growing and production and like where are licensed providers able to buy psilocybin to serve and, and where's the conversation at around that? Yeah, it's the other license, the uh, pr production license, cultivation license, manufacturing license. Um, yeah, there's a product subcommittee and they focus on, you know, kind of what, how to create safe standardized products that, that will make sense in this framework and how to license folks to, to do that. Um, Again, the OHA has not created rules around this yet, and there's been some recommendations coming through the advisory board on how best to do that. There's been a focus on um, incorporating organic material, the mushroom itself, uh, via extracts and um, creating standardized products that are kind of labeled and, and safe and packaged uh, that will move from the cultivation licensed cultivation facilities to service centers. Of course, there's regulations around how those products move and are tracked, and it's all very careful. And, um, yeah, I think that's always an evolving discussion. I think that the general position of the board so far is let's keep it pretty simple and not over-complexify in the name of creating markets before we're ready for kind of a proliferation of different kind of products. You know, it's hard to get a program like this off the ground, and we don't want to make it more complicated than it needs to be, at least out of the gate. And so that's kind of a philosophy uh, around products at this point. Mm. But there are opportunities to get involved. You know, I would, I tend to like kind of, um, you know, give a word of caution, you know, this is not cannabis. This is not going to be a gigantic market where there's huge opportunities to have big business around psilocybin. If you think about it, how much psilocybin do you really need to meet the therapeutic demand, you know, where one session takes just a little bit mm -hmm. of a product and that's enough for uh, some folks for uh, a good long time. So, you know, it's kind of more of a passion project to get involved in wanting to cultivate mm -hmm. mushrooms and whatnot. But we'll see how it plays out. Um, you know, it is an opening market. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I just don't want people to get confused that it's a kind of a gold rush kind of situation because I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that because, I mean, right now we're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars flood into the psychedelic space. And it actually, uh, I appreciate, yeah, just the framing on that. Get into this space because this is what you love. Um, what, what do you think are some of the other really big misperceptions that people who are watching Oregon just, you think, don't have right about what's actually really happening? I think we've touched on some of it. Um, but really, I think there is a misperception that either we've legalized psilocybin therapy, just psilocybin therapy, um, which is not necessarily the case, right? This isn't psychotherapy in the traditional sense of the word, um, as well as that we have legalized psilocybin completely, that, you know, that there will be dispensaries that people can purchase psilocybin from a cannabis-like dispensary. There's a lot of uh, comparison to the cannabis industry, and I do feel like it's significantly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really just understanding the licensing structure. Uh, Laura, you had mentioned earlier that, um, you know, doing sessions in your at home, that's not going to happen. So these licensed facilities are uh, are licensed in, you know, in particular, you know, their zoning restrictions. These are not residential uh, it's not psilocybin centers aren't popping up in residential neighborhoods or at, at people's homes. Um, so, yeah, it's just really understanding the structure of the licenses and how, how this will work out, roll out. I think once people get those basic talking points, it starts to make sense. But without those, and this was the challenge in the campaign, there's just a few things that people need to know, but it's really hard to disseminate a few things to an entire state of people. <laughs> right. And that was our challenge in the campaign. And obviously we did a good enough job to move it through because when we were doing focus groups and things like that, you know, people would come in and he'd say, you know, our intention is to legalize psychedelics and everyone's guard goes up and defenses rise. And it's like, no way. But then you provide just a few facts, you know, that there's some science behind it, that this will be in supervised licensed facilities that you know that just some of the care around it and all of a sudden those opinions flip you know and you could see it live in these focus group discussions during the campaign mm -hmm. and so we were able to own in on our talking points which are you know it sounds political but they're true you know they're based on what we want to convey to to the public and that's still the case even now even though we're on the other side of the the campaign it's still an education campaign. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anything that you're seeing that you're sort of not so impressed with, either the way people are showing up or, you know, engaging in this process, just like any sort of red flags that you kind of just want to speak to? You know, it's always, a, there are always challenges when you're trying to move something forward creatively. Um, you know, Everyone on the board, you know, has good intentions. And I think it's just important to like make that assumption rather than other assumptions. And this was true during the campaign. It's like there's a tendency to be um, um, suspicious about things. That's natural. Um, but, you know, this is what I said during the campaign is this is actually good news. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to receive good news. It's like, what, what's really happening? But, right. You know, I think that... Um, the advisory board is great. You know, there's a lot of healthy dialogue, um, sometimes challenging, but altogether, it's a healthy thing to, to 
to get as many perspectives as we can and you know just you know it's it's a it's a really healthy process and this is really a healthy program that's going to you know impact the state in a, in a positive way so i just try to keep focused on that mm-hmm. do the best we can i think we're doing that and uh that's my focus mm-hmm. um i agree with with everything that you said tom about you know keeping it positive and the process has been overall good and inspiring and sort of the complex conversations and the very different opinions that we're holding space for in these meetings, right? And so that's been really inspiring for me to watch the, like, there is polarization. There are people who have very strong opinions and we're holding space for that. And we're having to look at our own biases. I'll speaking for myself, you know, there are definitely folks who say things that I feel very, um, against in many ways and having to really listen to them in a different way and not just jump straight to my preconceived bias. Um, But if I can, I would like to speak a bit to my preconceived bias because I do think it's important, um, which is that I am a clinical psychologist um, and my career has been full of working with the most vulnerable clients who have very severe mental health struggles, um, treatment resistant PTSD. You know, I've, I've traditionally worked in veterans hospital systems, so with combat vets, and I am a bit concerned about how we're going to make this system accessible for them. Uh, We do talk a lot about access for folks who don't have a diagnosis and who don't necessarily get um, or do not want treatment in a traditional healthcare system. And there's lots of those folks who, for them, this is a great alternative. Uh, But I am concerned about some of the more complex cases. So people who do need a little bit more support before and after having a psilocybin experience, people who've maybe never taken a psychedelic before, who have heard about this on the news and the media, who believe that this will be a cure, um, who have tried many, many other things that have failed. Um, And I'm concerned that we may not have the resources to provide them with that extra support. And we're certainly working on it. And we're talking about it in the advisory board and there's a lot of care to make sure that we do address those needs. Um, but yeah, that's something that I am sitting with on a daily basis and feeling very strongly about wanting the people who are most vulnerable, who need this the most to be able to access it. Mm. And so what does that decision-making process look like? Are you guys on a consensus-based decision-making process? Like if everyone is in agreement, but one person is like, absolutely not, you know, how do you hold space for, I'm just kind of curious, like team dynamics, you know, anything you want to share about that? Yeah, we hold space for a lot of discussion. Ultimately, it's a majority situation. Uh, So we uh, put things to vote, but not until we've thoroughly discuss them. And we're getting better at that. I think, you know, part of what we're doing now is ensuring that everyone on the board has equal time to to uh, give their thoughts, because some people are just more, uh, you know, more energetic in their in their uh, opinions and can kind of run away from things. So as a board chair, uh, it's my job to ensure that everyone's voice is heard and and that influences each other. So those conversation dynamics are, you know, um, something we look at and our work in progress to make sure they're efficient and, mm-hmm. and helpful. Um, but yeah, ultimately, sometimes you just get to a place where it's time to vote, you know, and mm-hmm. we're, we're going to see where we land and you, it may go away that you were hoping it wouldn't. And so then you have to sit with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of votes and a lot of discussions. It's very, 
complicated, nuanced uh, program we're creating. Hmm. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and I, you know, concur with everything Alyssa was saying about how safety is still up front for me, uh, and in terms of addressing complex cases, and we're we're discussing today uh, at our training subcommittee meeting, you know, the process of kind of safety planning and really having a an overlay where we can kind of balance this um, kind of dialectic of access versus safety, right? You mm -hmm. know, it's, we want to achieve both those goals, but in some ways they kind of like the more mm -hmm. you make everything accessible, the more safety kind of goes down and it's one of those things. So you're trying to get them in a place mm -hmm. where both are addressed in, bal in a balanced way. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the Oregon model is about, is achieving that balance between access and safety and, mm -hmm. and having standards, but also opening up as much as we can in, in an inclusive way so we can help as many people as possible. So those kind of conversations are, are tricky. Mm -hmm. Those are the trickiest parts. And that's why we're like um, really focused on it now. It's been a topic of conversation all along, but we've gotten all the more straightforward things out of the way. And now we're really grappling with the kind of uh, nuances of achieving access and safety. Mm. And I do want to say, just to piggyback off what you just said, Tom, that I don't think this is an issue that's unique to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So that's something I've really realized as I've gotten into the nitty gritty of what we're trying to do, is this is an issue in the healthcare system at large is that the folks who are more vulnerable, who do have more complex needs, who do need more support, tend to have to pay more for that or don't have access or don't have insurance. And so it's really that we need to overhaul the way that we treat mental health care in this country as a whole. And we're trying to fit psychedelics inside an already broken system. And so these conversations, I think it's really just a microcosm of the problems that we're having in treating mental health and how we conceptualize mental health, like what is mental illness, mm -hmm. right? The predominant conversation around that for so long has been, well, it's an individual disorder. You know, it's something that is um, wrong with somebody's brain or, you know, they have this disease. But really, we need to reconceptualize that, that mental illness is a pretty understandable response to a broken society. And, you know, viewing treatment as more collective, as involving the family, the community, connection with earth, right? Reconnecting people with themselves and with others. It's not just about taking a pill and fixing a symptom. Mm -hmm. And so this is really a much bigger conversation that goes way beyond psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And maybe psychedelics can actually be the catalyst for how we overhaul some of these bigger systems. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I would love to use the remaining time we have together here to just get a little more personal. So, you know, this is the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. You both are really the epitome of what psychedelic leadership is. You're leading into uncharted territory here, and you both have a personal deep, long history with working with these very profound substances. So I'm curious, and take your time if you need a moment to reflect on this, but how do you feel like psychedelics are actually shaping the way that you lead and the way that you hold space for this movement into uncharted territory and like defining this as, as really leadership for a new era? Because I, I do think that psychedelics and plant medicines can actually help us become better leaders and we're going into a very different time in human history. 
So on a very personal level, how have your experiences with psychedelics informed the way that you fundamentally show up and lead in the way and the positions that you're in right now? Great question. I think for me, it really facilitates a service paradigm. You know, I I feel I often touch psychedelics in the midst of um, this kind of journey I've been on, which is, you know, helping psychedelics enter, re-enter into the culture. And it's been a humbling experience throughout. And the the interludes where I touch psychedelics to kind of process have always put me in a, in, in a, feel like an, like an agent of something that is just here to do the work rather than kind of looking at it through my uh, more um, ego structured um, personality or place. So I think there's just, there's humility in it. There's, service orientation and then there's just an expansion there's a um, the ability to um, catch different perspectives to uh, see a bigger picture to believe that reality is malleable Hmm. that things can change if you have a self-consistent overlay that you can see something that isn't there yet and if you kind of mentally can bring self-consistency into your own being and your own thinking that manifestation is possible. And I feel like I've learned that through this process. I've seen it. And that's kind of a responsibility too. It's like when you understand your creative energies that you can make an impact, then the question of responsibility and what you're doing becomes all the more important. So I think psychedelics have facilitated that kind of thinking for me. Hmm. Hmm. That's how I think about visionary leadership, which is really how I, one of the core aspects of how I define psychedelic leadership. It's visionary leadership, it's creative leadership, and it's compassionate based leadership are like the three big pillars for how I conceptualize psychedelic leadership. And you really just touched on all three of those there. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think that for me, um, being, well, I always say this when I speak about my journey in the space as a leader or just as somebody working with psychedelics professionally, that the journey of stepping out and making the decision to kind of leave a traditional career behind, leave my staff psychologist position at the VA hospital and decide that I was going to dedicate my life to bringing psychedelic therapy into the world. And that was around 2016. Um, And the journey from then to now has felt like one big ceremony. (laughs) Um, I'm, you know, in some sort of integration phase right now. Um, But I feel like it's really brought me into embodiment in a more regular basis where my source of decision making around how I show up in the space and how I move forward is about me connecting to information from my body and you know how that connects to um, 
trauma, both from childhood as well as historically and collectively, and where I, when I'm acting from a place that is connected to those trauma lineages versus when I'm acting from a place of authentic truth and, and discerning between those. And so anytime I notice a reaction in my body based on something that's happening in a space or a conversation that I'm having, my methodology is to step back and take space and go inward. And that's just part of my daily practice in big and small ways. And it's become, you know, just as second nature as the other sorts of self-care things that I do, like getting enough sleep and drinking water and just leading from that place of connecting to inner wisdom and then making decisions going forward from there. Mm. So it's definitely a lot of energy, um, but it feels really inspiring and a new way of being that's not all about making decisions in my head. Mm, right. Because everything is also moving so fast, especially in the psychedelic space. And it actually takes a lot of courage and almost discipline to slow down and permission to pause, permission to say, okay, I'm actually going to listen, which is a, it's the way of the medicine is to slow down and listen. So it's, it's just really amazing that we can, yeah, weave that into the way that we show up. Have either of you felt moments of fear? Like when you really stepped out and you were like, wow, we're doing this. I mean, like Tom, initially were you like, wow, I'm, I could like very potentially lose my license. This could destroy my career. You know, was that part of your thought process? A little bit, not so much about career, although that, you know, was, was in there, but I did kind of come to the conclusion that in order to, uh, to do this, to follow it all the way through that, I would pretty much need to be anxious or nervous about something every single day <laughs> you know? because I'm not like necessarily a public speaker. I'm not someone who just wants to get out in front of people. And I was doing that all the time. And, you know, so I was really pushing boundaries every day. And I was doing that from a place of, you know, envisioning the, the outcome, not because I loved the idea of doing that. You know, mm -hmm. although I do love talking about psychedelics, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, it wasn't necessarily in my energy field to like just jump on stage or anything like that. So or I'll be on a podcast or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I think that was um, part of my practice is that I kind of learned to embrace that anxiety. You know, anxiety is sometimes part of growth. And so the whole thing was a growth process pushing through some of that mm -hmm. and i like yeah. what you're saying like courage is definitely part of this whole movement right there's mm -hmm. just intrinsic courage to step out and say this is not what people thought it was it's something else and we're going to stand our ground and we're going to make it make sense and we're not going to be reactive we're going to move forward intelligently with 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 calmness and show the way, but, but firmness as well. All of that takes courage fundamentally. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's true of everyone who's, you know, really working in this space, including the two of you. Absolutely. That all really resonates. Uh, courage is just got to be part of it. <laughs> um, and really, I feel like that is a, a really fundamental deep value of mine and always has been that living from a values based place and making decisions that are in alignment with my values, no matter how scary that might be, and no matter what I might lose. Um, but I never quite imagined the degree to which I would put that into practice in being in this space. Um, and the amount of times that I have had to step out and say how I really felt about something and the losses that did incur because of that. 
Um, but that's okay because I feel like that's what's needed to really get us to where we want to be. And um, yeah, it's a lot sometimes, but it's worth it. Mm. One more kind of tricky question here. I really like these ones. They're my favorite, actually. Like, what I love you, these questions. Yeah, <laughs> what, what do you think is like the most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself or like the, the most, you know, valuable ways that you stepping out in this way has like fundamentally shaped you for the better? For me, I would say that working with Cherie throughout the campaign, you know, like as opposed to taking this on individually, learning how to be a tandem and how the, the energy balances in, in its, a certain way and how impactful that was. I don't think I could have, I know I couldn't have done this uh, without her. I mean, we were 100% together on the campaign and saw it all the way through because our energy was such together. And I'm kind of an individualist by nature. So that was, I learned a lot through that process. And I saw like that, I felt it, but I also saw how it impacted uh, the people we were communicating with. There was something about that balanced energy and in some ways modeling a couple, you know, I think there's something kind of like uh, assuring to people to see uh, two partners together on a project and being unified. It's not to say we didn't have challenges along the way, but we always got to unity and our energy sat together really well. And that uh, taught me a lot, taught me a lot of, uh, yeah, it got me into a, a, a space that wasn't so individualistic. And I think that helped me. Mm -hmm. I love that we brought Cherie into both the beginning and the end of this conversation. I just, I didn't have the opportunity to get to know her as well as I would have liked. We were just beginning to connect and share connection uh, before she passed away, but I very much feel her as a force in this whole movement. And it's actually a nice segue to what I was going to say about what I feel like I've learned about myself in this process to your original question, Laura Dawn, is, you know, Cherie was very much about being a voice for the most vulnerable. That was very important to her, really wanting to protect and speak for those in the community that didn't have as much access to their voice. And I feel like that's something that I've been able to really embody as well in my work in the community is to speak for others, to protect others, to support others, um, and to use my platform that I have to say what's needed um, to make the most impact. Mm, mm. That's and, beautiful. Know, That's beautiful. You know, we live in this culture where everyone throws around this word authenticity, like it ain't no big deal, but actually like actually dropping in and communicating and like being in alignment with authenticity and authentic truth and expression is the path of fire, really. Like it is no joke. True. <laughs> Definitely. Um, no joke. <laughs> yeah. So to wrap up for people listening, um, parting words of wisdom, advice for the many, many people, you know, I have quite a, a large audience who listens to this podcast. Many people are already in the psychedelic space, but a lot of people actually wanting to step into the space and contribute in some way, whether that's through facilitation or guide work or as integration coaches or microdosing coaching, you know, so any sort of like real depth of wisdom here for people who are looking to contribute to this space? Hmm. 
don't know about depth of wisdom, but just believe in yourself. Do it, you know, like Shri and I were not in any position that was elevated to kind of spearhead all of this, you know, and, and we achieved a lot. And it came from getting the idea out there and then connecting with others who, you know, you pool that energy and amazing things start to happen, but you, you have to take the step. You have to, uh, you know, take some risks, put yourself out there, speak your truth, uh, but speak it, you know, deliberatively. Think about what you're doing. Think about how you want to approach. Why? What are your intentions? What are the motives? Uh, weed out any motives that don't really, that, that aren't coming from your center. Um, think a lot about what you're doing, but then act. You know? Mm-hmm. And I would just add to that everything that Tom said I agree with. And I would add, there's no rush. I know when I was first getting into the space, it felt like there were very limited opportunities to do this work and that I had to do everything I could to make sure that I got that opportunity. Um, and I think there's still some sense of that, that, you know, we got to figure this out. There's pressure. There's all of these like corporations coming in and taking over. Oh my gosh, I got to get with the picture. Um, but really, I think this space is not going anywhere. I think it's exploding and it's going to continue to do so. I think there's so many different ways that people can get involved. There's almost like endless opportunities at this point for creating a particular way that someone can be involved. And so to Tom's point of really taking time and figuring out what is it that I most want to contribute? Who am I in this space? What are my values? What's important to me? And then acting from that place rather than acting from a place of pressure or fear that there won't be opportunity. Mm. I don't think this is going anywhere. Mm. Not anytime soon. And just while we're on a roll, I think I'm just going to add my own perspective on this. Mm -hmm. Just be kind. I just want to encourage people just to be kind in your authentic expression. And like, may we all hold our beliefs lightly. You know, these times are polarized enough. And I just hold the prayer that all of us in the psychedelic space can actually become embodied examples of what it means to show up and communicate from a place of kindness and be bridge builders amongst these divided times as really an example for the rest of the world. And it makes my heart a little sad that we're not already there with a lot of the very strong opinions that people hold. But psychedelics show us that, like you said, Tom, it's all malleable, you know, so it's all shapeable. And may we hold it all just a little lightly in the paradox of yes this is so important and let's take it seriously and hold the responsibility and also we're all just a fleeting moment in time here so we can just take a deep breath into that reality as well beautifully said yeah thank you for that jinx thank you you both are doing incredible work like really when i said just like the living definition of psychedelic leadership like that's it so thank you for your time and all of your daily dedication to this path is just it's really commendable so may we all send some wind under your sails for the years to come and some just good energy behind you and all that you're doing for the service of humanity so thank you well, you're very kind. Thank you so thank much. You. Appreciate it. Mm, thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Great. That was fun. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. 
I would so love to hear from you and I would love to know what have been your favorite episodes so far. What are some of the topics that you've really enjoyed and what are some of the topics that you would love for me to cover? You can reach out and send me a message through my website at lauradon.co or through Instagram at livefreelauraD. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you share one of the episodes on Instagram, please feel free to tag me and I would be so happy to reshare it in my own stories. And if you do leave me a review on iTunes, please send me a DM on Instagram. Once again, I'm at D, and I will be so happy to share that review in my stories and tag you in that post. And just a reminder that you can access all the resources that were mentioned in this show, as well as learn more about the work that Tom and Alyssa are doing and access full transcript, as well as learn more about the featured musician, all at lauradon.co forward slash 45. On my website, you can access all of my free downloads by going to lauradon.co forward slash downloads. I'm going to leave you with this song called Strongest of Our Kind. We got a little bit of a hip hop vibe going today. And this is a song by Mihaly featuring G-Love and Special Sauce. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. So much love from my heart to yours. Until next time. It's got me feeling like I just can't keep all the negative illusions from preventing sleep. I just gotta say bye to the lies and let the truth set me free. A quick smile can illuminate the journey, rolling fast in style. Gotta keep the fire burning till you find your peace. I just gotta survive the ride and let my love life burn free. What a thrill to watch them shine, overcoming the hell of life, straightening out a crooked line. Time, real up, come for wine, changing time. These politicians, they lie to ruin lives. Spoiled dreams, strong young minds. The system fucked up and the world is strange. The prisons got stacked, but the devil's got paid. They push a mess for kids like lemonades. But life is just a game, the rules always they change. A teacher might get you, but it ain't your fault. Big farmer pushing drugs like a dealer at the mall. Fitting on alcohol, nicotine, coke, and meth. It makes you wanna scream out it, lucky to death. They pushing pills in the stalls. So don't judge the downfall Help your brother stand tall It's the wake up call 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 What a thrill to watch them shine Overcoming the hell of life Straighten out a crooked line Trying to make sense of their time Always living with the pain That their hearts weren't made to take It's the strength none of us find